Welcome to the Well-Seasoned Librarian Podcast. I'm your host, Dean Jones. This is Season 10, Episode 17. On this podcast, we talk to food writers, chefs, and food historians, and more. If you've heard the term Gilded Age, you'll think of ornate lifestyle, big parties, fancy houses, and the people during this time period. You'd want to know, what kind of food do they eat? Today, I'm speaking with Becky Diamond, who is a valet varied career combining writing and research. Her second book, The Thousand Dollar Dinner, tells a unique story of the 19th century Top Chef style competition between Philadelphia restaurateur James Parkinson and the Delmonico family of New York. The result was a luxurious 17-course feast that helped launch the fine restaurant dining in America as we know it today. She is also the author of Miss Goodfellow, the story of America's cooking school, Goodfellow was a successful 19th century pastry chef who also ran an innovative cooking school for young women of Philadelphia first. I'm going to take you to my conversation with Becky right now. Welcome to the Well Seasoned Librarian podcast. I'm your host, Dean Jones, and today I'm talking with Becky Diamond, who is a food writer and research librarian. Her second book, The Thousand Dollar Dinner, tells the unique story of a 19th century culinary challenge between Philadelphia's restaurateur, James Parkinson, and the Delmonico family in New York. She is also the author of Miss Gold Goodfellow, the story of America's first cooking school, and she will have a new book, The Gilded Age Cookbook, that will be out in August, and is available through pre-ordering, and there's going to be a link in the bio we're going to talk about later. Becky, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. For our listeners who need to become more familiar with your work, can you talk about where you're from? Sure. So I was born and raised in I call it South Jersey, which is Southern New Jersey. We just usually refer to New Jersey as Jersey in these yeah. parts. Um, but now I live in Yardley, Pennsylvania, which is um, Bucks County, very close by to New Jersey, not far from Philadelphia and um, just beautiful parts of the state of Pennsylvania. So it's, it's a great place to live, absolutely. Many food writers I talk to have fond memories of food from their childhood. And I know that um, you know, New Jersey is a beautiful state. I've been there and I was really impressed by it. Um, it's just stunning. And you know, they don't call it the Garden State for nothing. And as well, Pennsylvania is, is equally gorgeous. What are some of the food um, traditions there and things that you remember growing up? Sure. I mean, you know, one thing I always tell people is I really have food in my background because my mother and my aunts and even my grandmother all went to college for home economics. <laughs> so they were all fabulous cooks. I can remember just being in the kitchen with all of them at any given time, especially holidays, um, just so much, uh, you know, food and cooking going on. And I would make, you know, make cookies with my mother and my sisters. And I, you know, remember pouring over that Betty Crocker cookie book. <laughs> I was, I just love that and saying, mom, can we make this recipe? And, um, you know, going through her recipe cards, I would make up my own recipe cards and give them to her and say, hey, this is something that I would like you to try. And, um, you know, you talk about New Jersey being the garden state. We had a big garden um, and, first it was on the side of our house and then in the back so I mean all through the summer and into the fall we would have fresh uh, tomatoes and cucumbers zucchini squash all kinds of things um my my father went to um Rutgers for uh 
their their ag school. He ended up being a teacher, but so at one point he worked for the New Jersey Extension Service. So we actually had chickens in our backyard, a chicken feed. Nice. And so we had chickens and eggs. People would actually come and buy eggs from us. So, I mean, I, I, I grew up seeing all these fresh foods and what you could do with them. And it just spawned my interest in cooking over time. So I have all of them to thank for that. So when we think of Philadelphia, we think of cheesesteaks and stuff. What are some of the other foods? I, I know that oftentimes a state or a city will get branded by something and it's obnoxious because uh, San Francisco is known for this obnoxiously hard, horrible sourdough, which I can't understand how people love. But uh, everybody that comes here gets it. I don't know why, because we have better we're in a city. But uh, is there anything that's, that you think is like really not known or is wonderful and in your well, state that is uh that you'd like to talk about yeah i mean and uh, it's funny the philly pretzels uh soft pretzels we actually lived in the uk for two years and that was one of the things i missed the most is a nice big soft hot pretzel um which i mean you could get them over there obviously especially german bakeries but um not nothing like a philly pretzel they're just fabulous also hoagies which is a very specific to this area so hoagies are like what other people would call a sub sandwich sometimes they're a grinder but in the philadelphia area they are called hoagies and um especially with you know salami and all kinds of um, meats and cheeses on them and a little bit of oil and vinegar so that's a big thing also just part of the whole you know we call it pennsylvania dutch but they were really pennsylvania german um that whole heritage from lancaster county and just a lot of their pies and baked goods and just really heavy um but su substantial meals you can go out there today and still you you go to a bed and breakfast and they'll give you a really hearty breakfast in those regions so those are the things that i think of when i think of the philadelphia area absolutely where'd you live in the uk we lived um, just south of London near Hampton Court. So Hampton Court Palace, we could walk there from our house. It was so amazing. And talk about food. They have these Tudor kitchens there that, you know, you can walk through and they're all replicating, you know, what, what it would have been like during Henry VIII's time. And um, yeah, it was a really fabulous time to be over there. I was there in the 80s. I liked it. I always really get mad when I hear people talk about British food and how bad it is, because I don't think it's true. I don't think I ever ate as well as I did when I was in the UK. What do you what did you think? What was your take on British food and what did you like over there? You know, there's a bunch of well, we were there like in the mid 2000s, so 2006 to eight. And I thought they had a real emphasis on you know, fresh organic foods. That's the first time I ever was able to get like really an organic food delivery service called, um, I wasn't, I forget the name of it now, but it was, it was fabulous. And also just grocery delivery was way ahead at that point. I would get some Sainsbury's, um, you know, I know we've been doing it here for a while too, but it seemed like they were a little more ahead of the time with that. Um, and just going to some of the gastro pubs. I mean, I love beer, so um, the one too. thing that was that we loved was that within walking distance, there was an old tavern called the Bell, and they had an outdoor children's playground. So our kids were 
pretty young at the time. So my husband and I could walk down to the bell, get a pint and they're playing on the playground with the other kids. And we're sitting outside. It was like being in somebody's backyard almost. Um, and it was just, it was fabulous. And this pub dated back to the 1400s. I mean, there's nothing in the U.S. that we, you know, think of building wise that could date back that far, really, you know, when you think about it. But um, yeah, so it was great. I agree. I love the pubs and it's, there's, you can't really replicate it here. It's not the same. You could build yeah. a pub, but it's not really this people. We'd have to change the culture to get it. And it's not the same. Right. Yep. exactly. So, yeah. So you're also a librarian. Uh, talk to us about your work as a librarian. Did you know you always wanted to be one? Was this something that was always kind of in your mind growing up? Yeah, you know, um, I've always loved books and reading since I was a child. I, I kind of started teaching myself to read at age three. I just have been fascinated with, with words and books and everything. Um, I would organize my own books in my little, you know, my own little library. But then when I started to think about where I'm going to go to college and what I'm going to do. I, I actually picked journalism as my undergrad major because um, I loved writing too. So um, it was from that and then my first job, I worked for Dow Jones. And that's how I got the buzz to go to library school because back then it was called information retrieval. So, you know, going, it was helping, you know, work at Dow Jones too because they had their whole information retrieval service. And so that was the track that I took. Um, so, you know, it just really kind of went from there and I worked for other different corporate libraries and in industry. So it wasn't until the past, it was like three years ago, I moved into academia and now I work at Rutgers as a business librarian. Um, but it, it parlayed really well since I worked in corporate and industry. And those are the types of, um, Inf that's the type of information I'm helping students with a lot of times. So it, it really was a good synergy. Um, but actually, you know, if I could do it all over again, I, I, especially with the line of work I've gone into with writing books, I would probably have gone back for archival librarianship. I love, you know, the whole archives and digging through um, old manuscripts and that sort of thing. So I don't know, maybe at some point I'll go back to that. I don't know, to get a certificate or something. Where do the intersection between um, librarianship and uh, food writing start for you? Yeah, it really, and it, it really does go hand in hand. It was so helpful for me. Um, I, I met, um, so we moved here to Yardley in 2008, and um, I met somebody, Bruce Franklin is his name, who um, is a small publisher, and I pitched him the idea to write my first book, and um, it really, it helped that I had this research background because, you know, I wanted to write a book about the history of cooking schools, so I could go to these old libraries, the Historical Society of Pennsylvania and the Library Company of Philadelphia, and I could, I knew what to do. I I knew how to look up information really well, and then and then write about it. Um, in my work, in the corporate world, I was often doing analysis, research, and analysis on a different level. But it was just the same way, but it was with history. So um, it it really has helped me to have those two skill sets over time. 
um, that research and, and the writing together. So, um, and I also think it helps. I'm a naturally curious person. The, the older I get, the more I, I want to know about history. And um, I always think if something is interesting to me, then it should be, you know, hopefully to other people as well. Others feel the same. So that I just want to write about it and um, find these unique little nuggets of information that people might not know about. You must have access to some amazing libraries back east. What are some of the libraries like that you work in? Yeah, I mean, so the two I mentioned, the Historical Society and Library Company. Um, the Library Company, you know, was founded by Ben Franklin. And I don't know what exactly how far it goes back, but it's, it's just this really old repository. It's fabulous. Um, not only, um, you know, written material, but a lot of visual material as well, which is really neat. Um, the Free Library of Philadelphia is another one that I've used. And of course, the New York Public Library, you know, there's some in New York too, but also small like the University of Pennsylvania has some good, like really good manuscript cookbooks as well as um, it's called Winterter. And that is, um, so in Delaware, the whole DuPont family has different um, museums and such where they have um, information, you know, different libraries. So that was another place that was really helpful for me to do some research. So yeah, it's, I, I just love going to those older libraries. It's, it's so much fun. I want to talk about your first book and what it meant for you. Um, your first book was called Mrs. Goodfellow, the story of America's first cooking school in 2012. Now, this seems to me to be a really fascinating topic. Can we talk about it? And can you tell um, our listeners a little bit about it? Sure. Um, so again, that, you know, when we, when we moved back here in 2008, um, I was looking to just pick up some work and I met this, I met Bruce Franklin from West Home Publishing and said, oh, do you have any editing work maybe for me? And he said, no, but, um, you know, this is the type of, um, he, he, he told me about the type of books he published, which were history books. And I'm like, oh, I've always had the idea to write a book about the history of cooking schools. Cause I had read something in a cooking magazine years ago about this woman, Mrs. Goodfellow had the first cooking school in America. And I, and it was in Philadelphia and having grown up in and around Philadelphia my whole life, I thought, well, I never knew that Philadelphia has so many firsts, you know, um, between, you know, just, the Independence Hall and the Declaration of Independence, like all these things were here. Uh, and people don't realize food was one of those things. Philadelphia really was the food capital before New York. It's an older city. Um, it's really where a lot of people came. Um, it was a port city. Uh, it is a port city. But um, yeah, so I really had the idea to write a history of cooking schools. And when I pitched that idea to, to Bruce, you know, we started to go to delve into it. And then we realized a lot of it was focusing on this Mrs. Goodfellow. And let's just write about her and see where we can go with that. Um, and it just, the more I read about her, there was plenty that I couldn't ever really find out about her. But what I could find out, I just was fascinated with her and, and this model um, of a cooking school. So you know, I always tell people when you think of cooking schools today, 
you know, people are going there because they want to become a chef or maybe be a food critic or something, you know, in the food industry. But back then, the cooking schools were for women that, you know, were from usually upper class families. Their mothers would send them there. It was almost like, um, you know, to learn deportment and, you know, cooking was one of the skills that they would learn and like in addition to learning French or art or music or something like that. So um, it was a totally different model than we think of a cooking school today. And there were probably, and I did find some other cooking schools that may have predated Mrs. Goodfellows, but hers was the most organized and the best known. And really I think had the longest kind of um, lifespan and, and propelled things forward the most in terms of cooking and um, just other, you know, things within, you know, food and, and how recipes are even put together and, and things like that. So, you know, that's, to me, it was, it was enough and, and a really interesting story that I could tell about her and, and her cooking school. So. What impact did Miss Diamond have on, um, on, on food like history and like, like her culture and her time period? Yeah, so, um, so she's credited for quite a few things. Um, she's known as the person who created lemon meringue pie. So she had a rich lemon pudding that um, when I was doing some research, you know, at some point she must have thought to put the meringue topping on the pudding. And then, you know, we have this lemon meringue pie out of that. Um, she also was, um, she insisted that all ingredients were listed first in writing out a recipe. Whereas before that, if you look at old manuscript cookbooks and even written, you know, published cookbooks from before the maybe mid 18, you know, hundreds, the recipes are all written out like in a paragraph and they don't have even specific measurements or, or really much in the, in the way of instructions. But when girls would attend Mrs. Goodfellows, she would say, you know, you must have a notebook with you and they would all take notes and write these down. And that's how she insisted that the recipes were written. So when you go back and look at these recipes that these girls left behind, you can really see that that was one of the things that she um, instilled in them. And these manuscript cookbook books were handed down to, you know, their daughters and granddaughters and, you know, Luckily, these older libraries, like I said, that you can find copies of them where they say it's a Mrs. Goodfellow recipe that they learned in her school. So that was a good, you know, main thing. She also helped advocate American ingredients. And when I say that, um, I mean kind of fusing flavors together that they were bringing over from England and, and other places in Europe. Um, you know, here corn was the grain that was the most readily available. So Mrs. Goodfellow yeah. had this, she called it Indian pound cake because um, they often called uh, cornmeal meal, Indian meal. So because, you know, maybe the wheat wasn't as available at the time, they made it with the cornmeal. And it's a really delicious cake, actually. Um, it sounds so, good. Yeah, it's, um, it's fabulous, especially if you can use corn flour. I actually don't mind using the cornmeal because I like that little bit of, bite to it, you know, the texture. Um, 
and she would incorporate other ingredients that were here, you know, like pumpkins and, you know, cranberries, that sort of thing that we think of when, um, when we think of what foods were really from the new world. So melding that new and old world together was, you know, in terms of cooking. Um, she also had a philosophy that she really only wanted to use pure wholesome ingredients. So nothing, you know, artificial, she would buy everything fresh. Cause even back then they were starting with some, um, you know, things that we would think of as artificial, but she just really instilled that, that value in her students. Um, and then she was a savvy businesswoman too. She, similar to like a Betsy Ross, she, um, she was married and widowed three times. So um, she had to really support herself and her children. She had a daughter and a son um, from different marriages. And this is another fun fact. Her daughter, Sarah, actually married Michael Bouvier. So Michael Bouvier is the great, great grandfather of Jack. Yeah. So, you know, he came to Philadelphia to do carpentry work from France and he settled and he did work for some of the really, um, you know, wealthy Philadelphians such as Stephen Gerard and Mrs. Goodfellow was all connected with these wealthy um, people in Philadelphia because they would all come to her. So um, in addition to her cooking school, and that's what I mean about her being a savvy businesswoman, she had the cooking school, she had a pastry shop that she ran to, and she did catering. So a lot of these wealthy people would come to her and say, hey, can you cater this event, you know, with the baked goods and such. And so that's how we kind of imagine that that Michael met her daughter, um, Sarah. Just unfortunately, Sarah died um, giving birth to her second child. So Michael then remarried. And that's really Jackie's, um, Jackie Onassis or, you know, Kennedy Onassis. That's really who um, she's descended from. But Mrs. Goodfellow at one point was Michael Bouvier's mother-in-law. So it's just kind of really interesting how that all played out. But so she, she did a lot of things and she was managing, you know, the household, the shop, just a lot. So. I could see why you wanted to write about her. That's, that's, she sounds pretty amazing. Yeah. And the other thing that was like, I was, to dial back to what I was saying before about like these schools being like kind of like teaching the girls etiquette and deportment. She was actually kind of a matchmaker too. Oh, wow. Again, she was, she was so connected to the Philadelphia society that she would say, Oh, well, I know somebody maybe for this young woman. And apparently this kind of tongue in cheek, but young men would wait outside her shop for these girls to be finished their cooking classes. And they, you know, the, the young bows would be waiting there to kind of court these girls coming out of the cooking school. So, um, so yeah, she had some of this etiquette, um, you know, that she was teaching them too about how to put together a dinner party. And um, cause the ironic thing is these girls would be learning in her school, but they wouldn't necessarily then go home and cook all the recipes because they had servants to do that for them, but they needed to know what foods were important to, to have at a dinner party and, uh, you know, when they were entertaining. And they also to, to tell the servants because, you know, oftentimes the servants couldn't really read. So 
these women would kind of dictate the recipes, um, except for the pastries. Again, pastry was an art that they would master to kind of, it was looked upon as, you know, that's a really, that's a skill that you've learned. And that's something that, you know, was, was really highly regarded. So that, that was the one thing that they would do. Um, so, yeah. This is, this was your first book. What was it like for you, you know, to hold this in your hand, this, this first work of yours and how did it kind of change things for you as a writer? Yeah, it really, I think the first time anyone writes a book and you're just like, wow, I did that. <laughs> you know, all that, that work that I, that I went through and um, all the juggling I did to make sure that, you know, I could go to these libraries and do the research. And, um, you know, I had help. Luckily, people, you know, at the time my children were younger, so I would get, you know, somebody to come over to watch my kids sometimes. And just like all those sacrifices that you make when when it comes together it's it's really great and and just to see it's funny she you know i i wrote about it you know over 10 years ago but i still like just recently somebody reached out to me um from the daughters of the american revolution here near where i live in washington's crossing that they have a historical book club and they're reading mrs goodfellow over the summer and they wanted me to come to their meeting in August. And I, I just, that warms my heart that they would invite me to do that and think to read my book. So, you know, it's just, it's really great. Your second book had a very interesting uh, topic and I, I'm very excited to talk about this. Your second book was The Thousand Dollar Dinner, America's First Great Cookery Challenge. It was published in 2015. And the topic was about well, I'll let you talk about the rest of it. Why don't, why don't you describe to everybody what it's about? Sure. Um, well, you know, we think of these top chef competitions today yeah. on TV as being like so popular. They're one of the most popular cooking shows. But actually, back in the 19th century, they were holding top chef type competitions. They were just a little bit different. Um, they were usually spearheaded by really wealthy groups of men from especially New York and Philadelphia, even back then, um, I know you're on the West Coast team, but Philadelphia and New York here, I have a huge rivalry. <laughs> um, oh yeah, yeah. Especially with sports, but you know, it went back even before that. Um, so they would always try to one up each other, you know? And so they would say, well, I know a chef that can put together at this dinner and they would invite the Philadelphia men and then the same thing, Philadelphia would have one. And so all these different cooking competitions as a way to flaunt their wealth and say, you know, hey, I have more money than you and we can put this, put this on and my city's better than yours. So the thousand dollar dinner was probably one of the best known of these cooking competitions. And it took place in 1851. Um, and the first part of it took place in New York at Delmonico's restaurant. And, um, you know, it was a group of 15 Philadelphia men that went up to New York and, and dined with 15 um, New Yorkers. So it was 30 in total. But the Philadelphians said, you know, this was great, but we can even do better than you. So we're going to invite you to Philadelphia. So they did that. And it was April time frame. And they hired um, this gentleman, James Parkinson who had his restaurant was called Parkinson's in Philadelphia. And again, he was a, 
also started out as a pastry chef. That was seems to be like one of the avenues to then venture into other areas of food. And I found out about him when writing about Mrs. Goodfellow because they were kind of contemporaries for a while. Um, he had an ice cream shop too. And then he actually you know, opened up a fine dining restaurant and, and had different locations. But they were, um, you know, they went to, to that restaurant and he put together a 17 course feast that started at 6 p.m. in the evening and lasted till 6 a.m. the next day. So 12 hours. Oh, wow. Um, I know, right? Um, <laughs> and so it was the, thir- the 30 men together and it had different things like baked rock- rockfish, a la chambord, um, braised pigeon, turtle steak, turtle in, in many different ways, um, spring lamb with mint sauce. There was a whole course of vegetables, um, four oh. dessert courses, um, it was just, just totally amazing. And, um, so then the New Yorkers, you know, stood up twice and gave him a standing ovation. So we like to say, well, the Philadelphians won, you know, they, they won this, uh, cooking challenge. Um, and the reason it said that it was called the thousand dollar dinner is because the Philadelphia news- newspapers coined it that because apparently that's how much it cost. To put on, which would be about thirty-two thousand or more in today's money. Um, so yeah, it was really um, an amazing experience and so much fun to write about. I so each chapter of the book is a course, and I go over um, just the different foods in the courses because so many of them aren't even necessarily eaten today or eaten in the same way. And, and each one was paired with um, a different wine too. And that in itself was really fun to research the wines because many of these wines aren't even like that variety is, you know, isn't necessarily around today. They were all, they were all old world wines. You know, you know we hadn't really developed the California vineyards and Washington. Yeah you know, kind of thing. So um, they were mostly French and German, I think Hungarian perhaps. Yeah. So that was really fun seeing what they, they paired with each dish. And I wrote about that too and why that was important and how the pairings were different than we think of today. So, uh, you know, like they paired the first course, which was oysters with a Sauterne, sort of, sort of which, you know, today we think, oh, it should be champagne or like a dry you know, wine, but that's what they paired it with. The, the wines back then were um, much sweeter than they are today in a lot of ways. Um, that was pre-phylloxera, you know, the Laos that like took over the vineyards in Europe. So these wines would have all been before that. And apparently wines tasted differently before they had to then graft new wine stock and really to save the wine industry in, in France. So um yeah, I would love, that's like something on my bucket list. If I could <laughs> afford a wine, you know, a bottle of wine from before that period, I would love to just taste to see the difference and what it would be. But yeah, so, but yeah, it was a really, um, it, it, it was an interesting, you know, way to do research and, and just, I tried some of the dishes when I could and, and we put together, I'm in a, um, historic food group called Historic Foodways Society of the Delaware Valley. And we put on our own thousand dollar dinner and um, not the 17 courses, but it was, I think it was at least 13 and other people 
I've done different events where we, we replicate parts of the dinner and it's always a lot of fun. So, yeah. Del, the name Delmonico's comes up a lot in writing and film. It's, it's an institutionalized name throughout, you know, history. What, what is the importance of Delmonico's? Are they, are they, they're still around today? You know, my, the latest thing that I've heard of is the one, you know, they were down to just the one um, that is downtown New York. And the latest I've heard that COVID, I mean, COVID shut them down. Um, And then I think they have new owners and they're trying to come back. I actually worked, I was like an historical consultant on a book called the Delmonico way that, um, somebody I know, Max Tucci was the author and um, his family had owned the Delmonico, had owned Delmonico's in the 20th century. Um, You know, they've had so many iterations over the years. The the old historic Delmonico's, you know, was started in the 1820s by two Swiss brothers, John Mm -hmm. and Peter Delmonico. And, um, it was really so um john knew wines and peter was a pastry chef so they actually opened up this um like wine shop slash confectionery in new york and then by 1831 they had opened it up as like a parisian kind of cafe a restaurant and then it really kicked off from there and they had their nephew lorenzo come in and serve as a manager and there was just different iterations like different locations over time um, there was one on Fifth Avenue and 14th Street, which was really especially well known for high society events and dinners, including the Charles Dickens dinner, which happened in 1867. They hosted him. So it just really became synonymous with fine dining. It was really the first really well known fine dining establishment in the US. And um, it made words like restaurant, menu, cafe, and even seeing French you know, words on menus become really popular. And um, it also spawned some competitors, you know, like Sherry's opened by Louis Sherry in 1890. You know, that was really a direct, he was right across the street from that location. So they, you know, they were all kind of vying for that upper class society. You know, who's going to come to our restaurant? But Delmonico's was, I mean, it just, it shows up constantly about that was the place to go for, a fine dinner for a ball, um, you know, so it makes sense that that's where that thousand dollar dinner would have kicked off, <laughs> you know, at Delmonico's, the first part of it. So. This episode is sponsored by Culinary Historians of Northern California, a Bay Area educational group dedicated to the study of food, drink, and culture in human history. To learn more about this organization and their work, please visit their website at www.chnorcal.org. Your next book is The Gilded Age, Pequot will publish in August of this year. Can you tell listeners um, what The Gilded Age was so, so they know it for context? 
Sure. Um, well, you know, the Gilded Age was coined by Mark Twain, um, and it was really a time frame in America's history that it glittered with wealth on the surface, but then underneath there was this kind of corruption and social issues. And it, we usually like to frame it from the 1870s, like I used to say 1870, through even like 1910, some people say through 1900, but I like to go into that early part of the 20th century too. I feel like it lasted through that. Um, you know, up until when you think of the Titanic, you know, like which was 1912, like really up until that kind of time frame. Um, and it just was like a, extreme prosperity from people like, you know, post-Civil War industry really was booming, different innovations, um, particularly the railroads and, and even steamships, you know, anything that was transportation. Um, and they all benefited from that, these captains of industry. And, and there wasn't regulation either, which that was the kind of played into it as well. So they kind of did what they wanted to do until the government eventually stepped in. But, you know, the rich got richer but there were countless people doing the manual labor to make all of these things possible. And there were plenty of people living in squalid conditions, overcrowded tenements, especially in New York City. So you have these really rich people, but then there's also, um, you know, these people that are really struggling. But the other thing is the middle class started to grow and the middle class started to really emulate what the rich were doing and wanted to, to do some of the same things. So you, you saw some of that too. Um, and then for cooking, it really, um, new opportunities were, you know, it really created new opportunities for that, like kitchen, new, like kitchen appliances, canned goods, um, you know, all the trains and steamships that were traveling faster could get goods to where they needed to go. Um, and you could actually eat things that maybe before that you wouldn't have been able to have because they're just weren't grown locally. So, um, and then I write in the book, also the Pullman dining car, that was something that really, you know, people could dine by rail and style. And, you know, speaking of Delmonico's, that's what he, he named his first dining car was the Delmonico. He wanted it to be like, you're sitting in a dining car but you think you're in Delmonico, you know, like has that kind of feel to it. Um, so that was really interesting too. And then just, you know, the, all the socialites, you know, we hear of the list of the 400, which is the select list that Caroline Astor and socialite Ward Mc, McAllister created that they deemed were socially wealthy. So there was very much this trying to set boundaries between the old money and the new money um, and, you know, who was in and who was out and, and food was definitely a way to do that about, you know, cause you couldn't afford these really fancy dinner parties or balls or anything unless you had money. So it just was a way to, again, to flaunt your wealth. So not only the material things like the, the gowns and the jewelry and all that, but also the food that you could present at these different events. Now, this was an agent of extravagance. Can you talk about some of the more extreme examples of extravagance, extravagance that may have surprised you in your research? Sure. Um, well, one thing, and, and I had learned about this 
through my first two books is like these exclusive eating clubs, like here in Philadelphia, we definitely had quite a few of them. And they were based on like these gentlemen's clubs in London where gentlemen would come and um, meet, discuss business, you know, just, and socialize. Um, They're very secretive and private. Um, there was one here in Philadelphia called um, the Schuylkill Fishing Club or the Fish House Club. They even have their own special Fish House Punch that I feature in the cookbook. Um, very strong, potent, <laughs> has rum in it and other liqueurs and stuff. Um, but, you know, all of these different clubs often had a different focus, like some were just literature, music horseback riding, but the most popular seemed to be these eating clubs, which they often would even call glutton clubs. So people would go and have these different, um, you know, special dinners. And um, again, they were all pretty much male based, um, you know, at that time. But again, it was a way to be exclusive. Um, Even, um, and then when New York had their social clubs, they would cap participants at a certain number, um, you know, so they could be restrictive in that way to keep out people that they didn't want to have in there. Um, you know, sometimes the membership would be limited to 600 people. Other times it was even more exclusive. Um, so it just depended on what the club was, but they often had, you know, they were like the Vanderbilts, the Belmonts, the Fish, the Dryer. So all these are dire, you know, these people that were, you know, in the railroads and, and other industries. Um, so that's definitely, you know, those those types of clubs. And then balls. I mean, the balls were just amazing. You know, anyone who's watched that Gilded Age show on, on H, the TV show on HBO, know, like, you know, they've seen some of the balls they've put on there and they are very, they do a great job depicting, you know, what it would have been like. Um, they would often were in somebody's home, you know, and like Mrs. Vanderbilt, she had one, um, her house on West 57th street. It was in 1888, like just over the top food presentations where um, it was really popular to take um, gelatin and mold it around different foods. I would say it was like museum pieces under glass because it actually helped prevent it from spoiling in that way. But also you could make these really ornate like sculptures out of food and, um, they like to have a theme sometimes, like they were really into mythology. So like at this one, she had um, the god Mercury poised over a piece of ham decorated with truffles. And there was even a pool of water with live fish in it swimming around. Oh and Yeah, I mean, they, they really <laughs> pulled out no stops, um, you know, and then like, often they would go to such late hours, like at midnight, then she would pull out like this full menu, like with hot foods and, you know, terrapin was really popular, all kinds of desserts, puff pastry. Um, And I always have to wonder like how much eating was really going on because I know they were dancing, they were socializing, whatever. I, I, I really do think that it was a way, hey, this is what we could do and look at all this food we can put out. I mean, I'm sure people ate it, but, you know, but I do think part of it was really just for show. Um, so the balls were a big thing. 
dinner parties too in people's homes. You know, until restaurant, until Delmonico's, really people just they dined at home and put on all these fancy dinners. It really wasn't until Delmonico's. And then they did start doing balls inside places like Delmonico's, Sherry's, the Waldorf. Um, but one I'll just I'll mention. So some of these outrageous dinner parties, and this, if anyone loves animals, it's not necessarily a nice thing that they did, but um, yeah. they they would do like um a dog like a dog dinner where this um, Mamie Fish even bought her dog a fifteen thousand um, dollar diamond collar, and everyone would bring their dogs and you know feed them special things, whatever. That wasn't necessarily so bad, but another time there was one. Um, where she invited a monkey to a dinner that um, it was Harry Lair and his wife, um, Elizabeth Drexel hosted. And this was in Newport. And she even had a tailor make him this little suit and everything. And she said, oh, I'm bringing a special guest with me to this dinner. And so when he, when she arrived with a monkey, they put him at the head of the table because they had reserved a spot for a special guest. And oh everyone thought it was all funny at first and whatever. And then they gave the poor monkey, you know, liquor to drink. And then the monkey started oh no. throwing things. And, you know, all the, all the women were screaming and running around. And so that was like, you know, it turned into a huge mess. Although, and then I was reading different newspapers. Um, and that's a, something that's really fun too, is to read the old newspaper accounts of some of these things. Cause again, you have to take it with a grain of salt. That's one reporter's depiction of what happened or what he was told, but it was kind of interesting because this Harry Lair then told the New York times that monkey story is a wicked falsehood and malicious slander. So of course he's going to say that, but you know, it's just kind of funny to, to see. And it, and it wasn't, I'm a big animal lover, so I wouldn't want that to ever happen somewhere that I am but you know it's those are the same types of things they didn't care about that like they cared about the kind of craziness like how crazy can we get kind of thing or you know how outrageous I guess is a better word to say so yeah being um being plump or overweight was kind of a symbol of status back then wasn't it like I remember depictions of uh Diamond Jim Brady yes. and people like that. And they were always obese. And that was like, this is a big shot. They're obese. Was that kind of a thing that was happening then? Yeah, I think so. Definitely. Like Cornelius Vanderbilt too, you know, the Commodore, they called him. I, I don't think he was a small man, you know? Um, and even the women too, I feel like were probably a little more ample when you look at their pictures than some of the women that were, you know, doing more manual labor. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I think it definitely set people apart. Um, the people of wealth were more, yeah, ample. <laughs> so. Can you talk about some of the culinary inventions of this time that helped cooking? And, you know, there were a lot of breakthroughs during this time period. Can we discuss some of those? Sure. Yeah. Um, well, one of the main ones was baking powder, frankly, because before we had these kind of artificial leavenings. We had to um, make cakes rise by whipping eggs. And it, it was before, so first, the, well, and then the rotary, rotary egg beater came around too during this time. Um, but the chemical leavenings would really help the cakes rise without having to do all that manual labor of, of beating the eggs. So that was a big thing. Um, 
And that was even starting a little bit during Mrs. Goodfellow's time. And that's why I was saying she's a huge proponent for pure ingredients. She didn't like the chemical leavenings. Of course, they didn't, they, I think they had more of a chemical flavor than we think of today. Like, I really do think they didn't mix in as well with like the ammonia. Yeah. And other, yeah, like sodium bicarbonate or whatever. Um, But uh, so but it did, it did help. And you just had to make sure it was mixed together well enough so you couldn't, you know, have that taste. Um, the other thing was refrigeration. So yeah. first ice boxes and then um, actual, you know, they could, once electricity came about, that was, that was a real change, you know, in the kitchen because of different appliances, refrigeration stoves, that sort of thing. Um, things like the ice cream maker, that was, like because ice cream was just adored by especially you know so where i around philadelphia ice cream is another thing that's kind of a philadelphia because we had fresh cream from farms you know west of the city and then um sugar because it was a port city and then whatever flavorings that you could, could get so that was a big thing um frankly cocoa processing this is something that in you know i don't think a lot of people realize but chocolate was really mainly a beverage until later in the 19th century because it was hard you know to to separate the cocoa butter from the chocolate you know to make chocolate easily mixed into different recipes so once they figured that out that's when you start really seeing chocolate in a lot more ways you know between chocolate ice cream cakes all those sorts of things. It was much harder. Like it was often, um, you would have to actually grate chocolate and I've, and I have recipes for that and it's actually really good that way though. You know, we just think now we can just melt chocolate or do, you know, um, you know, cocoa. So that was, that was a really big thing. I think, you know, all of those things were really helpful in propelling, um, things forward in terms of innovation during the Gilded Age. It's funny. I'm old enough to remember. I when I was young, um, baking chocolate was uh, a big, you know, you would grate it into stuff, and that was. But you don't see it anymore. Yeah. Really. Well, and I think because a lot of people, and this is the thing, like I still make my brownies from scratch. I make cakes yeah. from scratch. You know, you and I were talking about that before. Um, and people just today think they don't even realize that, you know, you can make stuff that doesn't come from a box you know you don't have using a box mix for brownies i know it's easy but so is making it from scratch it really is so you know i don't know but yeah all those things it's funny talking about uh chemical leavening it's funny we take it for granted because you know it's everywhere now but we don't really we have baking powder and baking soda but that wasn't you know that didn't really exist back then as far as i know right i mean that was still kind of a new thing yeah it was they did, yeah. Um, pearl ash was probably one of the first um, forms of it, and then moving into yeah, baking soda, baking powder, cream of tartar, um, and yeah, really. And then you start to see all these like multi-layer cakes become much more popular during the Gilded Age too, um, because it was just easier to put to make them not having to whip I mean a lot of times they would just delegate that task to a servant here you stand over here and whip all these (laughs) eggs for this cake 
and it would take a long time by hand, you know, so it really, it was, and said the egg beater was helpful too, especially in creating meringues and that sort of thing. You know, I, Vincent, I was reading a biography of Vincent Price and he talked about how his family were, um, improbably enough, uh, they were like chem baking, baking powder or baking soda barons and they had all this money mm -hmm. from doing that. And it, you, you would, it's funny to think of nowadays, but I guess that would have been a big deal. You'd make quite a bit of money off that, wouldn't you? Absolutely. And that's something that I talk about too, because um, there were women that taught in cooking schools, like Sarah Tyson Rohr was one, she was from the Philadelphia area. And then, so they would contract with different food companies, like that was their advertising, like, and then she would go on the road, like travel around, and people would come to packed auditoriums to see her speak. Um, you know, again, there was, that was like their, their social time and, you know, they didn't have TV or radio or anything like that. So, yeah. and she would talk about baking, oh, look what I can do with this baking soda here and baking, you know, I can make these cakes. And so it was a win-win in both respects because she could get her brand, her name out there. And then this, you know, the brand of whatever she was promoting, it was, they did a lot with chocolate too, with Baker's chocolate was another big one. Um, and they would have even these pure food fairs as a way to do that. Um, also all the, um, you know, like the 1893 World's Fair, the, the World's Fairs were another place where they were really promoting foods and um, just seeing what the innovations were. And so these women were really helpful in, in advertising. A powdered gelatin was another one that changed the lives of many people because making gelatin from scratch is a really lengthy process. And yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> I've done so, it. Yeah. Yeah. Don't recommend it. <laughs> yeah. So it was much easier to open that powdered, you know, packet of Knox gelatin and do your gelatin dessert that way. So um, yeah. So all those things were really helping kind of push things forward and that was like the early like i said early marketing and advertising really yeah it's funny in fiction i i see a lot of references and i read older you know books from this period and occasionally i'll see things that surprise me and one of them is is references to canned food and i read a, like a lot about how important canned food was to to the civil war and during that time period what were the innovations in canning and how important was that during this time period? Was it common in every household or did just some households have it? Yeah, I think um, I never so far in my research, I haven't seen anything to say that it was more expensive and that people couldn't afford it necessarily. Um, it definitely helped. Um, so like they, they, you know, they could can things like, oysters and lobster here on the east coast yeah. and then ship them to the mid like people in the midwest before that couldn't really have access to those things right. so it was really helpful in that respect and then of course when the railroads then were able to ship things you know much more quickly so the canned goods were, were one that you know it really helped to have those two things kind of happen hand in hand um and I think it really started with like soups and then like tomatoes too were another big thing that were canned, oh, yeah. canned from an early time. 
So, um, yeah, so it helped just spread. And then recipes created with those ingredients were then becoming more and more available to, to everyone, you know. So. Who are some of your favorite historical personages in the book that really kind of interested you? Well, it was interesting to um, to see all the different ties to, um, you know, of course, the railroad barons and their families. I mean, they were really those tycoons were the ones that, you know, I feel like set a lot into motion and just to kind of see what they did. Um, but there were people like Mark Twain, you know, he's the one who coined the phrase, but he, um, he was hosted at different dinners. And one of them was, um, you know, I talked about the eating clubs in Philadelphia. There was one called the Philadelphia Clover Club and hosted him in 1885. And they were, you know, I'd read a quote where that was really the beginning of the roast, you know, like where you have a dinner where you're roasting somebody, you know, like they're, it's a sponsored kind of dinner. And um, when Mark Twain, Twain attended, um, and they had all this, you know, really fine dining, fancy food, but he was a little surprised by the outspoken behavior, apparently, of these men, because they would get kind of rowdy and such. So, um, and he said it went on for like five hours. So that was interesting to, um, to see, you know, to read about that. Um, President um, Teddy Roosevelt um, in 1906, his daughter Alice married Nicholas Wandsworth um, in the East Room of the White House and over a thousand people were invited and it's still considered the largest wedding ever hosted in the White House. Um, and members of the 400, including like- <laughs> That seems Van inconceivable. I know. Um, it wasn't a sit down thing. Um, and oh. I write about that too where um, these luncheons called standing luncheons became really popular around that time. And that's how I envisioned this because it was people were standing, but they were served, you know, like there were waiters walking around and everything. Um, and the cake was so big when they brought it in, um, Alice had to use a sword to cut it. There was um, a Marine <laughs> officer nearby and she borrowed his sword. So that was really interesting to read about that. Um, just how, you know, we think of, oh, nothing, you know, you feel like things in history always, the most modern things top the older things, but it's not always the case. It's still considered the biggest wedding ever there. So that was kind of interesting to see. Um, I also liked reading, you know, we were coming out of the Civil War and there were people of color that were able to make it and do, there was this black elite actually in New York and they had their um, clubs and and balls and dinners and um, I write about this gentleman John Trower who was um, an African-American caterer in Philadelphia in the late 1800s early um, 1900s and he was the wealthiest they said the wealthiest black man of the time you know of that time he really made it and it was great to read his story um abby fisher she's another one she wrote um a cookbook she actually went out to san francisco she was formerly enslaved and made her way out to san francisco with her husband and she actually won medals for her jams and jellies and pickles and such um and really these women unfortunately she couldn't read but these women um really wanted her to write this cookbook because they loved everything she did. 
So they helped make that possible. And so Abby Fisher, you, you can find her cookbook. It's really, it's great, you know, that there were some, you know, stories like that and not all about all these, you know, the money and, and showiness sort of thing, so. So Becky, what's next for you? Well, I, I, you know, we were talking about the canned goods and I, I am working on a history of processed food. I, I find it ah. fascinating, you know, the whole process part, because I really try to eat, you know, as fresh food as I can and the least amount of process, which is, it's tough because it's pretty, you know, it's everywhere today. But um, I just had the idea like to do like, what did people eat for breakfast 150 years ago, lunch, dinner? It's just so different in so many ways. And I just want to write about that history. I know there's been other books written, but I want to put it, frame it in that way. And I think almost like a story, kind of like I do with my other books. Um, and then I do have another, just after writing this Gilded Age cookbook, um, hopefully to do a, a cookbook of, like there's plenty of celebrity chefs in the 19th century that people don't really realize, you know, oh. there wasn't TV and, and that sort of thing, but there were, and just kind of write, you know, all the, luckily what happens is that all the recipes, well, anything that was published that long ago is out of copyright. So you can, you know, and I take it and I, um, you know, reinvent these recipes so that they're, you know, they're made for, modern kitchens and modern ingredients and just kind of recreate them that way so i'd like to do that and just know that they're stories you know sort of thing and and to see so yeah so i got my hands full i guess <laughs> becky i want to thank you for being on the podcast we'll be introducing in the bio a link where you can utilize a promo code to get 30 percent off on this book if you pre-order it this is available on on any platform that you're listening to this program on, if you just check the bio listing, uh, check it out. And then also we'll have links to Becky's other books. Becky, I want to thank you for being on this podcast. Yeah, thank you so much. It was really great, Dean. I appreciate it. That was my conversation with Becky Diamond. You can find links to her website and her works in the bio. Next week, we'll be talking with author Anna Bolshnaya about her book, Budmo, Recipes from Ukrainian Kitchen. I hope you're having a wonderful week and perhaps you're cooking something from one of the guests that I've featured on the program. Until next week, keep on cooking.